I think Mark left it here to challenge his readers. How will you follow this Jesus? How will you follow what he's done? Will you walk in his footsteps and become a suffering servant to others? Obviously not the one who can give his life for a ransom, but will you lay down your life in caring for your neighbor and proclaiming this good news and sharing hope with those who are hopeless? Or will you be afraid, hide, and run away? I love this gospel because I know far too often I get stuck like these women, just not sure if I'm ready to do what it takes. And yet, the invitation from Jesus still exists. Come, follow me. See the Son of God. Listen to him. Walk in his ways and know that he has risen from the dead for you and me. Hi, this is Chris from The Point, a church where you can come as you are and you can text in your questions. You may not be sure what you believe about God, Jesus, faith, or the Bible, and that's okay because faith is not about having it all figured out and God is not waiting for you to put your life together before he'll connect with you. If you'd like to find out more about The Point, you can visit our website at thepointknox.com or connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at The Point Knox. Don't hesitate to contact us or join us in person every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. We pray this message has an impact in your life or at least makes it easy for you to connect with God where you are. Well, for those of you joining us on live stream because you wanted to skip all the detours, thank you for being here. And for everybody else, thanks for all the grace and the forgiveness you offer to me. I appreciate it. We are going through the Gospels over the course of these couple of weeks. We're looking at these Gospels, these eyewitness accounts and stories of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus in preparation for Easter. Last week, we explored Matthew and just what Matthew's all about. We talked a little bit about the structure he wrote into it, but more importantly, this kingdom This idea that Matthew was writing to depict Jesus as not only the fulfillment of the Old Testament, but also as bringing a kingdom unlike anything we expect or are used to. The kingdom of God or God's work in this world, the way he reigns and he rules, the the things he does, we would expect to be with great might and power, but instead he comes humbly. We'd expect to be very showy and flashy, and yet all throughout Matthew, he repeatedly said, don't tell anybody about what I'm doing. God's kingdom did not come as we expected, and that's why many people missed it. Today, as we continue with Mark, we're going to look at this book that is, in my opinion, one of my favorites. Anybody ever read through the Gospel of Mark? Mark is great for two reasons. First, If you want to try to read through a whole gospel, it's the shortest, which makes it easier. Uh, So if last week you got my email about encouraging you to read through each gospel each week as we go through this, Mark will be one that'll be a sigh of relief. You can do this pretty easily. But I also really like Mark because, well, Matthew focuses on Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. Mark focuses on Jesus through a different lens, as the suffering servant 
The one we read about in Isaiah, Mark's focus is that Jesus is king not because of the things he does that are grandiose or great, but because he chooses to suffer for you and me. And along the way, we discover that the disciples, according to Mark, kind of blow it time and time again. In fact, even more so than the other Gospels, the the Gospel of Mark really portrays all of the disciples and all of the followers of Jesus as completely unaware of what he's about all the way through. They never really quite get it. And I love that. And I'll tell you more here in a little bit. Now, the Gospel of Mark, who wrote it? Mark. You're right. You're right. Mark wrote it. And who was Mark? Was he one of the disciples? No, he was not. In fact, Mark was a traveling companion of Peter. Peter was one of the disciples. And Mark wrote his account from the stories he heard of Peter. But now one of the problems of writing somebody else's story is it's really easy to dismiss it and say, well, you weren't there, you don't know how it happened. You didn't witness it yourself, so surely this story might be made up or exaggerated or fabricated. So Mark, in his writing of Peter's account, he included himself very subtly in the story. Just as like a subtle, look, I was there and I know that I was there and I know this story is true. It's not just a secondhand me hearing from Peter. Let me tell you how I was there. Now, before I show you where he includes himself, know this. Mark is the oldest gospel we have. We have tens of thousands of copies of manuscripts, fragments of uh, original writings dating all the way back to about 15 or 20 years after the death of Jesus, which is a spectacular archaeological reality. And Mark is the oldest of all of them that we have. And if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you may notice there's some similarities. They seem very much the same, and yet they seem very different. It seems at times that they just copy and pasted one another without quoting the other. Plagiarism was apparently okay back then. Uh, It seems like perhaps they built off of one another. And so many times scholars think that the Gospel of Mark was actually in the hands of Matthew and Luke as something to help them write what they were writing. Whether or not that's true, we don't know, but we do know this came really, really, really soon after Jesus' death and resurrection. And here's how Mark, to verify that he was there, inserts himself. At the very end of the story, as Jesus is being arrested and taken away to be crucified, this is how Mark inserts himself. He says this, Chapter 14, and a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Mark was most likely the naked man who ran away when Jesus got arrested. And he writes about it in a subtle way, like a young man was there, because nobody wants to be the one who admits, I ran away naked because I was afraid. But also, he says, look, Who else would include a detail like this except somebody who was there to witness it? This is his humble and subtle way of saying, I was present, I know this is true, without admitting that he was the one who was fully naked and embarrassed. So this Gospel of Mark, real quick, 
It's just kind of an overview of the structure. We'll begin with the main focus of the whole gospel, Mark chapter 1, verse 1. You ready for it? Here it goes. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's it. Everything Mark is writing about is to help inform the reader, you and me, about the beginning of Jesus. Last week, you may recall, I talked about the word gospel, how it was, it actually literally means good news, and any time a new king was chosen or was put in place, they weren't really chosen, they were just kind of elevated, any time there was a new king, that king would send out gospels to the whole of their kingdom. Good news announcements, letting everybody know, look, my kingdom's better than the other guy, and I know that because I killed the other guy to take this spot. My kingdom's going to be filled with more peace and more prosperity and more blessing. It's not much different than literally every campaign speech we have today from any person, any party, right? Here's why I'm going to be everything you've ever hoped for. And if you know, they always let you down. So these gospels were announcements of a new king who was going to fulfill everything you'd hoped for and then some. Mark, he begins by saying, this is the beginning of of the gospel. It's the start of this good news for you and me. This good news about Jesus, the Son of God. We'll talk a little more about that profound reality here in a moment. But the whole rest of the gospel, Mark leaves himself out. He doesn't insert any commentary or any thoughts or any like a little brief aside. No, the whole rest of the gospel is him simply sharing This is the story of Jesus. For Mark, the story of Jesus is enough for us to believe. And at the same time, the story of Jesus is so unlike what we were ready for, for many of us it's hard to believe. Here's how we get there. There's kind of a simple structure to this whole gospel, how he's presenting Jesus, the, this, this new king, this good news that this king has arrived who's also the son of God. Here's this gospel. First, the the beginning portion, about the first eight and a half chapters, Mark presents all the work of Jesus in and around Galilee. And he presents Jesus in this first eight and a half chapters as doing great and mighty things and all the people are astonished at his healings, at his feeding the hungry, at his great miracles, especially at his ability to cast out demons. In fact, that phrase, the Son of God, comes up in these first eight chapters a couple of times. And in each time the phrase, the Son of God, comes up, it is demons encountering Jesus and being terrified, being afraid. We know that you're the Son of God. Please don't torment us. Please don't do this. Please, we know who you are. But in those first eight gospels, as the people see the power and the authority, not eight gospels, eight chapters, sorry. In those first eight chapters, as they see the authority and the power of Jesus demonstrated, the people are not only left in awe, but they're left confused. Who can calm a storm? Who can heal the sick? Who can do these things? And the most offensive thing that Jesus does is he forgives the sins of the people. In fact, there's a story in Mark 
where there's a man who's, who's lame and can't walk, and his friends bring him to Jesus and lower him through the roof, and Jesus looks at the man and says, their faith has made you well, be forgiven. And all the religious leaders say, only God can forgive sins, how dare you? And Jesus says, which is easier, to tell him be forgiven or to tell him to get up and walk? And so to prove that he has the authority to forgive sins, he tells the man to get up and walk. And the man does. And all the religious leaders get really offended. How dare he claim that he can forgive sins? Only God can do that. So while the demons recognize Jesus as the son of God, the people don't. And so the next section of, of Mark Chapters 8, verse 27, through about the end of chapter 10, that little section, Mark demonstrates the disciples wondering the same things that all the people were wondering. And along the way, they're moving from Galilee towards Jerusalem. And as Jesus moves towards Jerusalem, the disciples begin to wrestle with like, what does this mean that you have this authority? Who are you really? And also, what does it mean for us? Like, if you have this authority and we're close to you, what kind of power and authority do we get to have? And before we look at the end of this gospel, we're going to pause right here and we're going to dive into one story that happens here in the center. As Jesus is moving from Galilee, as his disciples are questioning, what does this all mean? We get to this incredible moment in Mark chapter 9. If you've been around the church much, perhaps you've heard of this moment described as the transfiguration. It's a really fancy term. But I'll show you here in a moment why it's such a simple term when we think about it. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, the first transformer, all right? Jesus became something different in front of them. What does that look like? His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, to give you some context here, if you go back to the Old Testament, any person who went up onto a mountain often encountered God. And there on that mountain, God would often show up in some grandiose uh, manner where there's great light that's shining, that's blinding them. God would show up and speak in this radiant power and beauty. And two people specifically were the two prophets who encountered God the most on mountaintops, Moses and Elijah. And so here Jesus is in his journey towards Jerusalem, having done all these signs and wonders, demonstrating his power and his authority, demonstrating who he is, and everybody was confused. And he takes his three closest pals, Peter, James, and John, and they go up on a mountain, and he changes into this figure radiating light with clothes as white as none of us could bleach. Imagine being Peter or James and John and witnessing this spectacular sight. Now remember, this is Peter's account of this moment. 
Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Peter, as you often see throughout the Gospel of Mark, opens his mouth and makes a fool out of himself. He says, hey, if this is where God's going to be, like if God's going to show up in this moment and Moses is here, he's kind of a big deal, and Elijah's here, he's sort of a big deal. Let's just like settle in, we'll build some tents, we'll stay in this moment forever. I think in many ways we often want to be like Peter as well. We have some moment where we feel really close to God, some experience where we know he's with us and we just want to dwell there forever. We want to stay in that place where things are great and we know God is good and we don't have to worry about all the other people around us who drag us down and all the people who have high demands of us and we just want to stay where things are good. Continues. And a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud This is my beloved son. Listen to him. The son of God. The very one whom demons cried out to and everybody else was offended by or confused by. They hear this voice spoken from the clouds. This is my son. Listen to him. Now, if I were there on this mountaintop experiencing this moment, this radiant light, what could this be? This is so wonderful, wanting to stay forever. I'd be pretty disappointed with what happens next. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. See, Mark presents this story as kind of the pinnacle change for everything to come after this. As he's been journeying towards Jerusalem, Jesus has already begun telling them, I am going to die. I am going to suffer. I'm going to be killed. And he's already begun telling them all these expectations of your authority and your power and your might. You're going to have to let those die too. Because following me will look nothing like what you once thought. It's not about your glory. It's not about spectacular mountaintop moments. No, it's about this son of God whom you listen to. And it's when they hear that voice that suddenly all the wonder and the glory and the awe seems to disappear. And they're just left with Jesus. Oftentimes, I think for us, we get really disappointed when we're just left with Jesus. Can't we have Jesus and something else? Can't we have Jesus plus this other thing? Can't we have Jesus made in our image doing what we want? And we just get Jesus. Is that enough for us? And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they, keep, they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. 
Like, surely he doesn't actually mean that. Like, it's some symbolic meaning, right? Some significant thing we just don't yet understand. Who rises from the dead? Don't tell anyone until then. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that that first Elijah must come? See, there's this prophecy that Elijah would come before the Messiah, before this king who would rescue them. Why do they say that? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. How is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. See, they're looking for this great figure in history who's going to return, who's going to be the sign that the the end is coming soon, the Messiah is nearly here, this king they've long awaited is almost arriving. And Jesus, he says, look, he came, and what did they do to him? Exactly what they've done to everybody else. If you know what happens to prophets in the Old Testament, most of them ended up being hated for the message they preached. Many of them were rejected and even at times killed for speaking something people weren't ready to hear. Jesus says, hey, you're looking for someone that's already come. He's already done this, and what did you do? You killed him. Elsewhere in another gospel, we see that Jesus looks to John the Baptist and says, he is that Elijah who has come. He is the prophet who's come to declare the king is coming, make way. Make ready. The story continues, and the disciples, even after this spectacular moment, blow it again. Even after seeing Jesus here on the mountain and hearing a voice, this is my son, even after all of this, they begin to argue with each other, which one of us is greatest? Which one of us will like have the power to sit at your right hand and your left hand, right? We want to know who among us gets to rule over all you other suckers. Jesus, hearing them argue about this and discuss this in chapter 10, he says this. Chapter 10, verse 42. Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. He says, you guys know how it works, right? If you want to be in power, you got to have people under you. That's the way to do this. The only way to the top is by stepping on all the peons along the way. He says, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. They have this great and glorious moment on the mountain where God shows up and he speaks, and they're filled with awe and wonder. And they're left with just Jesus who then says, don't you know that the Son of Man came to serve, to give his life for all? This is what it's like if you follow me. This is what it's like in my kingdom. And for Mark, this then acts as a transition into what comes as the final section of his gospel. 
Chapters 11 through 16, this last section, are not him in Galilee demonstrating his authority and his power and might. It's not him journeying towards Jerusalem, letting people know he's going to be that suffering servant Isaiah promised. Now, the last portion of Mark is him in Jerusalem. Chapters 11 through 16, he's there in the place where God had promised to dwell in the place where God had promised to be, where the religious elites and all the people who trusted in God were to gather to await this coming king. And instead, what do they do? They kill him. Because the things he says just don't quite line up with what they want him to say. In fact, as they kill him, as they hang him there, they put a sign above his head at just a week after this moment. They put a sign upon his head that says, this is the king of the Jews. You want good news? This is what you get with this king. You want really good news of peace and prosperity and everything you've hoped for? This is what you get. A man hung as a criminal, suffering and dying. Is that the king you want to follow? And Mark, he does something spectacular the end of his narrative. In chapter 15, Jesus, he cries out and he breathes his last. After suffering immensely like he said he would, he breathes his last. And a Roman centurion, a man who was not only on the outside of faith, but was an enemy of the people of God, looks upon Jesus hanging on a cross. And this is what he says. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. And Mark's gospel mostly ends right there. And the declaration that it's in his death, in his suffering, in his humility, that we see truly how great God is. And if you read the gospel, you know there is a chapter that comes after this. Because there's the resurrection, Jesus promised, the rising of the dead. We see that Jesus rises in chapter 16. Some of the ladies go to the tomb to anoint him with oil and prepare him for burial, to grieve and to mourn. And instead they find an angelic being in an empty tomb. This being says, go and tell Peter and the disciples that he is risen as he said he would. Now, if you have your own Bible, flip to chapter 16 real quick. If you have one in the pews, you might notice this too. There's this incredible story where this angel shows up and says, he is risen, just like he said, go and tell everyone. And then you get to verse eight. Verse eight says this, and they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And then if you were reading, read a little further, there's an inserted footnote. It says this, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 through 20. See, because we have all these really old fragments of the Gospels, we can look back and try to piece together what was the most likely original story. Some of the earliest ones end the Gospel of Mark here at verse 8. 
Some of them continue. Now, scholars have long debated, should we include these last 11 verses or not? And ultimately, I think it's okay to include them because they were included in some manuscripts. But I wonder why Mark may have left it here at verse 8. This king arrives, he does great things, and like, who is this king? His own followers question, can he really do what he says he can do? Like, what about us? We want to be in control. We want to be in charge. We want authority. He suffers and lays down his life. And then after rising, he tells his followers, go and tell everyone. And what do they do? Nothing. They go away afraid. You see, I think Mark being Peter's gospel, the account of Peter, I think it ended here probably initially for a really big reason. Peter, of all of us, knows what it's like to be afraid. He knows the difficulty of following Jesus and laying everything down before him. He knows the highs of the mountaintop and the lows of denying Jesus. I think Peter had Mark leave it off here at verse eight to leave it with a question for you and me. This suffering servant, this king who would give everything, this son of God, is he enough for you? Or is your fear and your confusion too much for him to handle? I think Mark left it here to challenge his readers, how will you follow this Jesus? How will you follow what he's done? Will you walk in his footsteps and become a suffering servant to others? Obviously not the one who can give his life for a ransom, but will you lay down your life in caring for your neighbor and proclaiming this good news and sharing hope with those who are hopeless? Or will you be afraid, hide, and run away? I love this gospel because I know far too often I get stuck like these women, just not sure if I'm ready to do what it takes. And yet, the invitation from Jesus still exists. Come, follow me. See the Son of God and listen to him. Walk in his ways and know that he has risen from the dead for you and me. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son. Lord, you have given everything. And as Jesus is often not who we anticipated, as the way you work is not always what we desire, God, we know your ways are better than our ways. Lord, may we look to the suffering servant with confidence. May we declare that this man of sorrows is the one who ransoms us from all of our sin, who gives us strength for tomorrow. God, by your wounds we are healed. So we ask today for that healing. For the places that are hurting, would you come and anoint us and make us new? For the places where we are weak, would we trust in the God who became weak for us? And God, whatever the cost, 
whatever the challenge, whatever the burden, may we follow after you because you are enough. We ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen. As we continue our worship today, we're going to collect an offering. We collect an offering in this place as a means of trusting God with our finances and saying, I want to see my finances help continue to share this good news with other people. And so if you came prepared today to give, if you would like to give via cash and check, you can do so in the popcorn buckets as you exit today. If you filled out one of the physical connect cards with a prayer request or a way we can connect with you, you can put that in the buckets as well. If you came prepared to give today, but you prefer to do so online, you can give at thepointknox.com by clicking the little teal button in the bottom corner. However you give and whatever you give, know this. We don't give to get God's love, but because we already have it. Thank you. Well, this is a part of service where you guys have texted in questions and I get to do my best to respond. What kind of doozies do they send in today, Emily? Yeah, okay. So first question is, so it, is it believed that John the Baptist had the spirit of Elijah in him? I'm a little confused there. Not in like a literal Elijah's soul was there, but uh, the spirit of Elijah is often used to refer to, uh, like we would sometimes say, like a, the, the spirit that drives you is not necessarily a, a soul, but more an attitude or a purpose and a mission. So yes, the spirit of Elijah was there in that he was consistent with the things Elijah did and the things Elijah promised, and he was continuing that mission of preparing the way for the coming Messiah but he wasn't actually like embodied with the soul of somebody like else. reincarnated yeah. as John yeah. the Baptist. Um, okay, one person asked about closed captioning on live stream, which is not something we currently have, but I think we should definitely look into. That's a- yeah, I think we've tried to look into it in the past and we'll continue looking into how can we do that. Options That's a great there. option. Yeah. Um, okay. Also, real quick, if you know anything about technology like closed captioning or live streaming and you want to help, we would love for additional volunteers to help out and maybe teach us something new we don't currently know. So, yeah. Amen. Um, what scripture in Isaiah was the man of sorrow taken from? Isaiah 53. You just knew that? Oh, it's so impressive. Uh, I'll admit, what were the though, verses? What were the verses? Seven? No. No, I don't know. It was three through five. That was so, very, 53. Uh, three, maybe I made that up. Maybe it wasn't three through five. Hold I'll on. I'll tell you though, when you were reading it, I was like, is that Isaiah 45 or 53? I think it's 53, so I had to look it up. So It's I, 53, three through five. Yeah. I cheated earlier. It's okay. <laughs> if you're cheating as you looking through scripture, that's okay. <laughs> um, second question in there was, can I get an audio of this song by the church band? I'm staring deeply into Chris Foster's eyes back there. He's looking away. (laughs) Okay. Um, If you're ever interested in that, periodically Chris will upload um, sound band. Sound Sound cloud. Um, Files to the Point Knox or the Point Church, the Point Knox Church Facebook group. So if you're not a part of that, um, it's a closed group just because um, we were having people join from like different states who've never heard of the point. We kind of want it to be like a, a safe place to ask for prayer and stuff. So if you ever want to be a, a part of the Point Knox Facebook group, the Point Knox Church Facebook group. 
It's a mouthful. Ask and you shall receive. And that's where, he'll, that's where he will periodically post those. Woof. Okay, this is why Thank I don't answer questions. questions. I don't have to answer. This is great. <laughs> um, I believe that is it for this morning. Someone, oh, someone said something really sweet, though. Not a question, but although the music is always awesome, this morning I thought it was amazing. Emoji. Well done. Great job, band. You inspired me to have a great week, and for that I thank you. That's so sweet. You, you guys Thanks. are great. We love you. As always, you can text some questions all week long, and if we notice them between now and Wednesday, we'll share something on Facebook on Wednesday afternoon or evening. If not, we'll just respond to them next week. So if you have a 3 a.m. question you really don't want to forget, feel free to text it in. It won't wake me, I promise. All right? <laughs> well, with that then, receive this blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he look upon you with favor and give you his peace. Have a great week. Amen. Thank you for listening to one of our Sunday morning messages. If this message has made an impact in your life, please let us know. Simply fill out the Contact Us page on thepointknox.com. And if you'd like to be a part of supporting The Point Ministry, simply go to thepointknox.com forward slash support. Don't hesitate to contact us or join us in person every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. We pray this message has an impact in your life or at least makes it easy for you to connect with God where you are.